everybody. This is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of September 30th, 2022. I'm here with filmmaker Gigi Hawkins. Hi. And uh, editor-in-chief of No Film School and producer and writer and extraordinaire uh, George Edelman. <laughs> Thank you. Wow, I'm having a special day. Thank you. I'm doing what I can. You know, Edelman extraordinaire. I like that. Yeah, it's a good one. Well, I just felt like, I was like, well, like, you know, you got to mix it up. Yeah. And this week we are going to be talking about up first, James Earl Jones signs off on being digitally replaced, which, man, there are implications to that. Tom Hanks has only done four good movies and an Ask No Film School about what do you do for a regular paycheck in film? All that this week and probably some more on the No Film School podcast. All right, so first up, you guys have probably heard the news and we want to talk about it because there's lots of implications for filmmakers, which is James Earl Jones, having already had some limited use of his voice created by a Ukrainian AI in some recent shows for Star Wars. I don't know if it was Mando or Obi-Wan or- It was Obi-Wan. It was Obi-Wan, but there was some limited use. I mean, James Earl Jones is, I believe, 92. so. You know, he gets to pick and choose what he wants to do at that point. You're 92. You've had your run. You can be choosy. And he liked enough what was done that they have negotiated the contract for the ability to continually use a James Earl Jones voice with his permission in perpetuity. And there's like so many complicated issues filmmakers need to unpack here because there is the idea of like, how do you paper it so that you own yourself? Because obviously Lawrence Olivier ended up in a fucking vacuum cleaner ad in the nineties. So like, how do you create that lockbox for yourself? If you're a public figure also like, can you do public domain so that there's the possibility so that like anybody could put James Earl Jones voice in their movie. And there's like the fascinating thing about the technology because it's audio only, you know, it's growing by crazy leaps and bounds. I feel like fake voices when I started writing techie stuff in 2015, 2016, the fake voices were bad. And now 2019, you're like, nope, totally. If you have a big enough sample set of the voice, which James Earl Jones, you have acting credits back to the 40s. You can build a really great model to make any voice sound like it. Usually what happens is an actor performs and then it gets transformed into another person. We're not talking about full on robot text to speech because there's still... Those, in my experience, still have occasional delivery problems where they like accent. Oh, you know, I mean, think about Siri. Like, there's still something sometimes where they hit a word weird and it doesn't really work for like performance and emotion. So, usually, you're taking an actor and then you're changing that performance into James Earl Jones, similar to what they did with visuals in Leia, where they had a younger actress playing Leia and then they digitally sort of put Carrie Fisher into the performance. I don't know. There's so much to unpack here. I have I have so much. Can I just start? Because I yes. feel like I've really been tracking this closely. I, I, and I have a lot. So first of all, I think Laurence Olivier was in something. I know Fred Astaire was in a vacuum commercial. I know also John Wayne was in a beer commercial. I remember when that happened. I know that they reanimated part of Marlon Brando, old footage of Marlon Brando, for a super Superman Returns. Like, this has been a slow, this is a fascinating process to me that's been sort of seeping into the mainstream piece by piece. And usually they they can go farther 
They meaning like the tech and the production entities. And then they tell us something after they've already tested the water. So for example, Luke Skywalker's return as a young Luke Skywalker in The Mandalorian involved some deep faking and some not great effects and a stand-in and some Mark Hamill and some robot voice that was an algo using everything Mark Hamill ever said that was recorded, kind of combined with him recording new dialogue. So they were already like, hey, we can do all this stuff. And there's like a famous old joke that from like one of the Star Wars actors, like Harrison Ford or Mark Hamill or Carrie Fisher, where like George Lucas would replace us all if he could with stuff like mm-hmm. that. Now, of course, it's not George Lucas. Ironically, it's Disney. But who better than Disney to be the one to do this, right? To make everybody into a Mickey Mouse. This is where it becomes so fascinating to me, though. So in Rogue One, I'm a big Star Wars nerd. So this is why I know a lot about it as it pertains to Star Wars. But in Rogue One, which featured some Darth Vader prominently and was released, I want to say, like 2015-ish. No, maybe after that. After that, for sure. Anyway, it was released a little ways ago and James Earl Jones recorded dialogue. And if you saw that movie and you're super familiar with his voice and his acting and Darth Vader, you were aware that it was like, ooh, he sounds older. Like by a good margin. Like Darth Vader sounds like he had a sore throat that day. He was a little tired. Like it doesn't quite look, that feel the same hearing the voice coming out of the, the body because it's not changed. Like when you see the changed an aged actor and their voice is a part of that. It's one thing. But when it's like the Darth Vader thing that's been consistent since 1977, but the voice is different, you're like, eh, something's off. Okay. So Darth Vader appears in this new show, right? That came out this year called Obi-Wan Kenobi. And the voice is not the Rogue One voice. Like I knew immediately, I was like, "Uh uh-oh, something's up. Like that is some... Algo James Earl Jones, knowing what they did with Mark Hamill and Luke Skywalker. Plus, if you watch it, there were times when I laughed, not like a good laugh, because it sounded a little bit... Do you guys remember those soundboards? There was a time when people would do like prank calls and they'd get like uh-huh. the Arnold soundboard and they'd like play like a phrase. It honestly felt like that sometimes. Like they were stumbling through the process of like, let's stitch together some things for Darth Vader to say. But like, it didn't quite line up like the performance of it. Like you said, Charles, it wasn't as bad as like a Siri, for example, but it was a little bit like, uh, like, I don't like, what's the intent there? Here's what I kind of love about it, as creepy as it all is. And then, of course, they come out now and they say, oh, yeah, by the way, <laughs> James Earl Jones just told us it was okay to do this. It's like, uh, you kind of been doing it already, I think. But yeah. okay, either way, what I kind of love about it is like, what even is Darth Vader anymore. They paid the guy from the prequels to get in that suit sometimes. They paid a stunt guy to be in it. They've had multiple <laughs> actors like play his face. There was a kid who played him. There's James Earl Jones's voice, which is now a robot voice. There's obviously some CG Darth Vader, quite a bit of it at this point. Like Darth Vader has become something that's like He's like Mickey Mouse or, or, or yes, literally he is like Frankenstein, but he is becoming. And like, I don't know why they don't like, cause it's Disney and maybe this is part of the plan, but I don't know why Darth Vader isn't like literally everywhere. I don't know why he isn't in every show. I don't know why he isn't wandering around the park, talking to people like (laughs) what's holding you back. Like he's, 
basically this creation. You have full. He, he's an iconic. Well, like George, I think he's, he, he does hang out on Times Square and on Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, Fair that one. Time. They gotta. So first of all, that guy needs to get a cease and desist because <laughs> because they should be making every cent they can. But like. Darth Vader, like, is so iconic and so reproducible now for them. Like, why isn't there just like a show about like Darth Vader chilling, like, in his castle all the? I don't, I don't know why. Like, and it seems like it should be cheap to produce. Like, so to me, it it's fascinating that they've done that slice of life Darth Vader show is what you're. I I mean, I would watch it. (laughs) I would totally watch it. Like, just like not even, there's no fighting or anything. There's just what he does every day. But either that aside, like there's, to me, it opens up, like Charles said, and this is where I kind of want to push it back to you guys after my rant, but like, or my historical analysis. This is where it becomes so fascinating is like, they can do whatever they want now with Darth Vader in perpetuity. (laughs) And it does make you wonder, like, at what point does that become true for like Indiana Jones? Like, I know he's not, as easy to reproduce because the face, you know, is human. But yeah. right, but there is gonna we're gonna get there because they kind of did it with Luke Skywalker. Like, and and also similarly, as long as they make characters that are aliens or in masks or droids, like they, there's like a way to kind of cut around something and and like amalgamize a creation that no longer has like Toy Story. Okay, what's gonna happen when like? Tom Hanks, who we might talk about later on this episode, like they have his voice. You got tons of recordings. Can can Woody be in anything ever forever? The answer is yes, right? Kind of crazy. What, what's interesting is like I, this doesn't feel that far of a leap for actors to be signing on to this because so much of what they do is, you know, show up, be in the moment, perform, are excellent, but then once they're gone, they lose control of everything of how they're portrayed. Like I, I am, I'm to this day so blown away by how vulnerable you have to be to just be an actor in front of the camera and have no say over the script, given how many stories are reinvented in the edit. And so it doesn't feel like giving away this James Earl Jones giving away his voice. It doesn't feel that that crazy to me, you know. It's a good point. I mean, it also just brings up all of these other issues of like, I remember when Stanley showed up in a new Marvel movie after Stanley passed away, everybody was like, this is a tragedy. And I, I still maintain like, if there's anybody who would love that, it's Stanley. So like, that's not mm-hmm. someone I'm worried about. But like, it is interesting to think about the negotiation process of like turning yourself over to a specific corporate entity and saying, all right, you now have permission to do with my voice. Like, what boundaries are you drawing? Like, what are the? I wonder what like? Robert Downey Jr. is thinking. Like with Iron Man. Like, I, I wonder if this is opening up for all of these people these things where it's like I better figure out what my deal is in in regards to the future use of my voice. You know, yeah. or the Spider Man. Many people have been Spider Man. Or the. What's also like? You know, how exciting would it be if you know somebody was just like, all right, everybody can use my voice. Here's the print. Here's the data. Go go have fun because. You know, we're going to be in, you know, I always think about, you know, Chris Marker deliberately left all of his work in legal limbo. Like he went out of his way to not have any, like it is neither public domain nor not public domain. And there's a way to contact the Chris Marker estate. He sent up an email server that no one can check 
but you can yeah. legally contact the estate by emailing the server, but then they just all go to the trash. So like, you know, I mean, that's Chris Marker. Chris Marker is great. If you guys haven't watched San Soleil or uh, some other Chris Marker movies, you guys should all go watch some Chris Marker. But like, it is interesting to think like, could Brad Pitt just be like, all right, fuck it. Everybody have fun. Have a good yeah. time. Just ma- don't it. make me say anything racist. I mean, <laughs> I think it would be really cool if somebody donated their likeness voice. and voice to entertainment in perpetuity. So like anybody making a movie could be like, I'm releasing a new Brad Pitt vehicle. <laughs> it's like a Brad Pitt doing all kinds of weird stuff. Or like, I'm ca- like, I mean, I don't think we're that far off from those kinds of things. Like from the family. Here's another one. Okay. This is, this is a really weird like it's it's a little off topic, but I think it totally applies. So a lot of celebrities have Twitter accounts, right? Right. Like and, and tons of them, like old school celebrities. Like, and one of the things that consistently happens is when they die, somebody continues to run the Twitter account and make it sort of like a in memoriam. Now, the reality is most of the time, whoever that was was running the account long before. Because very few celebrities are tweeting all the time as themselves. Right. Like, and it's, it used to be assumed that they were in the early days of Twitter, but now everybody knows like George Takei, like some of these people who have these big ones, it was like, it's not really them. Like it's an aide or it's an assistant or whatever. It's a child of them. <laughs> One of the ones that happened recently was James Kahn. It was like James Kahn died. He had like an t- active Twitter account. And then there was this big tweet that was like, Hey, I'm James's assistant. I don't know how everybody feels, but what if I keep tweeting as, you know, the account in memory of James Kahn and, and, you know, throw back some stuff and, James Garner, there was a similar thing where it's like, hey, I'm his daughter and I'm going to do. And, and what's interesting to me is like, there are descendants or whoever, assistants who have a job they could still do managing the likeness, the rights, the social media, the celebrity of this deceased person. And we saw in the case of Stanley is a good example. Stanley was being taken advantage of by a lot of people. It got really dark in the last days. Bruce Willis was somebody who like a lot of people, they were like sending him out to work. He was being taken advantage of. He was having a hard time doing the work, remembering the lines. He had issues, like health issues. Like there's all kinds of weird, potentially exploitative, strange, nuanced aspects to this, but it's definitely already happening. Because like we're going to see people continue to basically capitalize on a celebrity's celebrity long after they're gone. Can I ask a question that might cause all the Star Wars people to come after me? Terrified. Yes. Does Darth Vader need to be voiced by James Earl Jones or his likeness? Like, is that absolutely necessary? Because we're we're switching out the Spider-Mans. Why can't we switch out? Yeah, I mean, no. Like, there's no, yeah, it, it, it doesn't. I, I mean, it probably you're going to get the same, like a lot of people who don't want to accept anything else, but there are some probably very solid imitators or facsimiles or similar ones. In fact, there's a Lego Darth Vader who's hilarious and whoever does the Lego Darth Vader does a great job. Like I would watch the Lego Darth Vader's. Like I, So in my opinion, like, no, it absolutely doesn't have to be. It's great that it is, but the to me, the robot one is awkward. So I mean, I'm fine with it because I think it's funny and fascinating, but mm-hmm. like, no. It doesn't. But I mean, also, it doesn't even need to be a James Earl Jones imitator. Like, Batman is not only played by Adam West. 
Like we have to remember, like Adam West 100%, was the, yeah. the defining Batman when James Earl Jones started Darth Vader. And we've had some Batman takes since that approach the character in different ways. And Michael Keaton's been fascinating and Christian Bale. And I haven't seen any of the Ben Affleck ones, but I'm sure I will at some point because I'll be on a plane again someday. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved our Pats. Our Pats was an amazing Batman. And like, there is the potential for it. Like, this goes back to my whole thing with the Irishman, where I was so bummed about the Irishman. Yes. Because it's not the strongest movie, but also because like the person playing young Robert De Niro should be an amazing 29 year old actor that, you know, is getting a break the same way De Niro got his break in the Godfather two by playing a young Marlon Brando. Right. And like, it does sort of ossify and cal not ossify. Cause I don't know what that means unless it means to become <laughs> like Ossie Davis uh, calcify, which is an actual word. Ossify might yes. be a word, but I don't know what it means, but ca it calcifies culture a little bit to say, okay, James Earl Jones is the only Darth Vader. And it's like, all right, if, if we're going to accept that these are our cultural texts that we get to interpret. And like, I don't object to that. Like I enjoy some of the Batman movies, some of the Star Wars I, you know, love me some Rogue One. Like, I think they're amazing texts that have a lot of richness to it. Like, I think that George Lucas deserves a lot of credit for like this universe he built, but like, you know, we're now saying, okay, only Darth Vader can only be played by James Earl Jones. And we would rather move it to a computer. Yeah. No, than I'm give with you someone a shot to bring I a fresh take. And I agree. I, I watch they, a lot of those Lego Star Wars with my daughter because she's not old enough to watch any of the real ones, but she wants Yoda stories. And the people doing those voices in the Lego Star Wars movies are amazing. They are. And they're doing a slightly different version of Luke and Han and Leia yeah, not and Darth Vader. And like, it's, it, yeah, and it totally works. Like, and I have no, like, that's the thing. Like, they tried, they, they did a recast of Han Solo. Whatever you think of it, like, didn't go well, did go well. I don't know. But like, there's no reason you can't try it again. There's no reason you can't try to recast Luke. And like, there's plenty of people who could do it. And it would probably make for a more interesting series yeah. or drama than the strangeness. The, there was an uncanny valley. There was a whole episode. They did, a, they did a cameo with him at the end of one season, which was really cool. But then they did a whole episode in a follow-up season with this version of Mark Hamill that was so uncanny valley. Like, it was like, I know that's not him. Like, why not cast a guy who does his own vibe on it that we can accept or not? And then we'll, you know, like that to me, it's just not like, I, I don't understand the desire to do it because when you, as a studio, decentralize the casting, you retain more power over the IP. You know what I mean? Right. Like once you make it like, there's a hundred Spider-Man and there's a hundred Batman. Well, now you have all kinds of power, which is scary in a different way. But like now you don't need an actor to do. You just need to find a new good one every couple of years. Your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in LA by enrolling in RIT's immersive 10-day course this June. An exclusive experience in LA You'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio, the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films. Limited seats are available. Learn more and enroll today at vpritcertified.education. That's vp.ritcertified.education. But I actually, I need some help with this one because I'm struggling to find an example. All the examples we're listing, right? Don Corleone was originally in The Godfather, the book. And so having a young Corleone or old Corleone is one thing. With The Irishman, they had a you paint, houses, you paint Houses, Don't You book that they could have 
adapted. So like we can make the argument they should have used different ages. Spider-Man, originally a comic book. Batman, originally a comic book. These IP weren't born in cinema. I see For what you're saying. For an IP that's born in cinema, mm. that originated in cinema, has there been a successful recast? Uh, you know, because like Bewitched, 50 years later, people still talk about recasting Bewitched, right? So I wonder if if being born in cinema gives you a different... Well, James Bond is not born in cinema either. Yeah. And confess novel. Fletch. That's another one where Fletch, they just, just came out. Interview, shameless plug. There's an interview up with the director on this podcast. But the they recast that. And that was a challenge because even though Fletch is a book series, people really just know it as that movie with Chevy Chase or those movies. I think there's some truth to that. I'm trying to think of a recast of a cinema role. That's not a that, reboot. Something that's like a prequel. Well, oh, Dumbledore. Not a remake. Well, there's a lot of remakes. I was going to oh. say Dumbledore, but that's from a book we all know. Mm. Oh, wait, is that is that from a book series? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Little uh, listeners, listeners, let us know. Is there a good example of a recast? We will do our, our homework for next time too that worked of a role that was born on the screen. So no prior written, like, can't be Philip Marlowe. I know that's what you were all thinking. Uh, <laughs> well, again, I don't know. Can't be Sherlock Holmes. Uh, written for a book. Back to the future. People are still mad about recasting the girlfriend in Back to the Future. True. Do you know who got recast a ton? The boy in Mad Men. Oh, yeah. But that's... He was growing up, but yes. I feel like that might be the exception. Except on Lost, where they were like, time has no meaning, so the kids are going to grow up too fast. Like Walt's son. Every time you saw Walt's son, he was like a year older because, you know, he kept growing a year at a time on Lost. You want to know a funny casting thing in TV that's always seemed super weird to me? Just a really, really strange segue, uh, unrelated. So an old tradition of TV shows, before everything was like serialized especially, was that shows would have guests who recurred in different roles. (laughs) They would come on the show over and over again and play different characters. And like that seems so crazy to me now. But I do remember watching shows way back when that was normal. And it would be like, oh, it's that actor again, this time playing a different part. Like, (laughs) it just seems so weird now. And there was this kind of crossover era, like Deadwood is a good example. There's a couple couple actors in Deadwood, or maybe there's just one, who's like in one season as one guy, and he comes back in another season, and he plays a completely different guy. And it's like... it used to be normal to do that. And now that would be so strange. You and of course, 30 Rock does the like tongue in cheek version of that with Rachel Dratch. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, you know the backstory to 30 Rock. Oh, yeah. I love this backstory. It's such a good FU to the studio. So wait, Rachel oh, Dratch. I don't know your FU version, but it originally starred Rachel Dratch. Yes. And have and you then, seen the original pilot? I, I don't know if I have. You should, everyone who's interested in writing should, and in television should go find the original pilot. It is online. And it is such a great example of the power of another pass. And like, look, she was already Tina Fey. She'd already been head writer at Saturday Night Live. Like getting another shot is not something we all get, but they literally like they reshot about half of it. And the new pilot is so much better. And you can see why they thought it would work. And it just doesn't. And then they just reshot all the stuff that didn't work. They recast the parts that didn't work and then, you know, launched 30 Rock. And, you know, it, 
so Rachel Dratch is the star and it's not right. And the reason it's not right is she is too energetically close to Tina Fey. Mm. So we have two people occupying a very similar energy and there is no like driving conflict. And then they recast Rachel Dratch with uh, Jenna Maroney, which must have been complicated and must have involved <laughs> a lot of feelings and conversations. <laughs> but it is better because there's a contrast between her character and Tina Fey that creates an engine that is missing in the pilot. And it's one of those things of like, you know, like obviously every great piece of art is magic, but like there's also some like basic foundational stuff you can do. And it was an executive who really pushed for it, whose name embarrassingly escaped me, who was like, I like this, but I think we can go further and let's try some of these things. And like, you know, executives are not all bad. And an observation like, are these two characters too similar? And could we create more contrast here? is the kind of note that you get from an executive that you are probably like likely to hate. But holy shit, did it help 30 Rock having more contrast between Tina Fey and Jenna Maroney. This almost seems like the perfect segue to the other headline we were going to do. It does! From here to Tom <laughs> Hanks. Oh, Tom. So, yeah, that's just so perfect. Like, So here's the thing. What you just said is such a truism. Making a good art piece of art is truly magic, a magical act, especially one that involves so many collaborators and factors. And especially when you consider that so often there are feelings involved, like the feelings thing, like how do you navigate having these close relationships and these good relationships and liking one another and one another's work and recognizing that what's best for this project, which has so much money involved. I mean, just imagine like, you know, it's a network show, like the opportunity for everybody involved, even if they've already been successful and being forced to say what's probably best for this is if we lose this person we know and respect and replace them with someone else. Like that's a huge challenging thing to do and probably coming from an executive uncomfortable and nobody wants to do it. And yet in the end it works out. Like how do you weigh those decisions? And I, I like segueing to the Tom Hanks thing, Tom Hanks, says he's so Tom Hanks is writing a book everybody on a typewriter is, I don't know that for a fact <laughs> really? but I'm just going to assume I think he would Oh he's such a typewriter Let's just guy. Let's just let's just say he is whether or not that's the fact What we know is uh the movie is an upcoming novel called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece it'll be out May 9th 2023 and it's a fiction about the making of a multi-million dollar superhero film and the comic book creation that inspired it. Here's the quote from Mr. Tom Hanks himself. No one knows how a movie is made, though everyone thinks they do. I've made a ton of movies, and four of them are pretty good, I think. And I'm still amazed at how films come together from a flicker of an idea to the flickering image on screen. The whole process is a miracle. Movie making is very hard work over a very long period of time and it consists of so many moments of joy slapped up against an equal number of feelings of self-loathing. It is the greatest job in the world and the most confounding of labors that I know of. It's a really beautiful quote, I think, and an extremely accurate one because I certainly don't know anything about making, I mean, I know some things. I don't know much about making a movie like the kinds Tom Hanks has made. I haven't been on the sets that he's been on in the time periods he's been on them, seen the inside of the sausage being made from his angle. I've seen it from other angles. So I think there is a real truth to the everybody thinks they know, but it's every situation is so different. There are so many moving parts. There are so many collaborators and people involved and notes. And I always cite Like he says, I've made 
four pretty good ones. I think that's fair. I think like the batting average of anybody is going to be super low because yeah. it's so hard. But I always cite Casablanca, which a lot of people call like one of the top three movies ever made, probably. It's just a mess of different contributors. <laughs> and the story of making it is just a constant, like everybody in doubt, everybody, there's no, like, you can't say like, oh, well, Orson Welles is a genius or like the book is great. And Coppola was perfect. And like, God, like you, it's like the other two, probably in the top three, but it's really like Casablanca is really like this weird mess of studio notes and changes. And oh my God, it came together to be perfect. And it's a model of what we should all do. But how? Like, cause it's such a crazy circumstance. So to me, it's exciting that he's doing the book. I love the quote. And I think, you know, like Charles said, it is, an, it is a miracle when it comes together. Can we guess what he thinks his four pretty good movies are? We should try. Yes. I'm going to go with Big, Castaway, Catch Me If You Can, and, and then I'll leave the last one open. That's so you're not going to include any of the Toy Stories because you don't feel like you're no, the... Toy Story 1. I'll, well, no, I'll, I mean, I think, I think there's a fair argument to make that he's only talking about being on camera. I think that's fair. I mean, I do feel like I don't associate, I don't immediately think Toy Story and think Tom Hanks because I think Woody, which is why it's so, I mean, that's the first movie I saw in theaters ever. So that has its whole, a whole other bubble in my brain. Toy Story was? Yeah. Oh my God. I feel a hundred years old. <laughs> I was <Yeah>. in preschool. <laughs> I was in preschool. My dad took me after preschool, which was a big deal. But yeah, being a Bay Area person, I had to go see this Pixar movie that everyone was talking about. But what do you guys think? Four pretty good movies from Tom Hanks. I mean, I'm going to say this. We're never going to know his list because everybody that he worked with is still alive and you can't risk hurting anybody's feeling. I mean, that's why Tarantino has a movie podcast now, right? And But his rule is it's only, he only talks about the films of dead people because he's like, I can't do a movie podcast about movies that are coming out now because I will know someone who worked on it in some capacity. So I can't say what I really think about anything, which I'm like, that is a shockingly considerate, nuanced opinion from you, Quentin Tarantino, who is famous for being a bit of a blabbermouth. But like, yes, mm. you if, if you know everybody who worked on it, you can't really say it's dog shit, even if you personally <laughs> think it's dog shit. So that's that's really nice of you, Tarantino. But he has a movie podcast, I believe, where he's talking about old movies or one is coming. Regardless, We'll never yeah. know his four good movies list. I'm going to say that we can be reasonably confident Cloud Atlas is not on it. <laughs> I'm like just scrolling the list right now. Do you think like the ones like that thing you do? Like, do you think his list, if he made the list, he would be like, oh, it's the ones I directed or what? <laughs> the four best movies I made were the ones I wrote and directed. Right. Um, I mean, um, Woody Allen would do that. Uh, I mean, I yeah. think that there's a good shot that there's going to be some interesting oddballs in there because the experience of making it was so good. Like, I think The Burbs or A League of Their Own, like some early peak period probably does all belong in there or big. He's and a middle-aged boomer dad, so his World War II movie Greyhound is probably deep in there just because, oh. you know, or uh, Saving or Private, Private Ryan. Ryan, like the peak. Um, Saving Private Ryan, that's going on. That's my number four. If I Tom. He got so COVID while making Elvis. So Elvis is probably not going to make the list just because, you know, it got him sick. He's so interesting. In, <laughs> I mean, that's one word for what he is. Elvis is, I actually really liked Elvis, but it's, he's interesting in that one. This is a that fun movie's game. wild. 
Yeah, it really it's quite a it's quite a ride. I love Bob Lerman so much though. Yeah. This is fun. I feel like he would put Philadelphia on the list because I think it's important. And I don't know that he would, because he did have a great quote recently where he was like, nowadays it would not be a straight man, nor should it be. And I remember thinking another great quote from Tom Hanks about movies where he was like, it was a straight man at the time. I remember it was such a big deal that he did it, mm-hmm. like that it was like brave, you know, like that's how much, how far we've come. Right off of a sitcom, right? It was kind of his first. Yeah, he was, I mean, comedy stuff, like, like big, like the Burbs. Like I loved comedy Tom Hanks. I love the Burbs. I think it's an excellent movie, but. I assume he's going to put like, I mean, Apollo 13 and Saving Private Ryan and Philadelphia and maybe Forrest Gump. Like, I'm assuming it's something like that. Guys, I think we have to also go out on a limb and say of any actor to say I only made four good films. It is like clickbait insanity for Tom Hanks to say it. Because if there's anybody who has inarguably made more than four good films, (laughs) it is I think that's a good point. Like, I think he's being humble. I think he's a humble guy. I don't think it's false humility. But I also think he's trying to emphasize that, like, I love the quote because he has made tons of very good movies. And I think that it's just a very, like, honest, like, hey, like, making a perfect movie is so goddamn hard. That like even the ones that I've made that are pretty good are maybe not perfect. Like maybe there's something about them that could be better. I just kind of love that take from somebody who's had a pretty basically unparalleled success, right? Yeah. Like he's in like some one percent of people who have even had the opportunity to make movies that he's just had like so many hits. Yeah, but so I mean, many- like he's so good. He was in one of like I think he's only been in one podcast, and it's one of the best podcasts of all time. What so- podcast? Oh, did you guys not listen to Dead Eyes? Oh, well, I mean, I know the premise of it, and and he is the he is the like the whole reason. The white whale, but I mean, no spoilers. They get they get their whale. Ahab gets Moby Dick in in Dead Eyes, and it is it is everything you could possibly hope it would be. Worth the three seasons of the podcast. Oh, is delightful. Absolutely, arguably one of the best multi-season podcasts of all time. You know, he has, I mean, we're on this tangent about him and this quote, and we're just saying nice things, but he has a reputation and I've had it confirmed like secondhand or third hand. that he's a real bastard? Cases. That reputation? No, that he's just the nicest guy. <laughs> and I think that that probably has something to do with a, a good deal of his sustained success, yeah. even when he's had strange missteps. I think that there's a lot to be said about that. and. I mean, you can't talk about him and not talk about how there was a funny clip recently, though, where like paparazzi got like up in his business with his wife and he like lashed out. And it was really weird seeing Tom Hanks be mad because he's just not that guy. That was a fun one. But I, I, yeah, I mean, he's made a ton of good movies. It's very humble of him to say there's only four good ones. And it's also very true that making good movies is like with even the best of intentions and everything going right. So hard to do. Agree. Good movies are magic. On the flip side, movies are like, movies rule. And like, you can also, like, even some notoriously bad actors are in more than four good movies. Like, just off the top of my head, Eric Roberts is in way more than four good movies. And like, 
has a reputation as being sort of like a B-list actor or whatever, but like has been in way more than four. Like, I feel like he's being a little hard on movies in general. Like, what if he's joking? <laughs> I mean, he is joking. This was taken totally out of context. Yeah. He's like, yeah, he's four pretty good ones. Like, at the I mean, camera when he's. I could, in. I could. Yeah, I could believe that it was sort of an like a like a crack because like humble, he doesn't hashtag like, humble brag. Yeah, maybe it was false humility as a joke, but like either way, yeah, there are like what is a good movie? Like, what do we even? I remember once having Ben Mankiewicz, who the, a TCM host, was on the podcast talking about their podcasts. And something really interesting we were talking about was like a not good movie. And I always feel this way about like old movies too. It's like sometimes I just like an old, not good movie. And by not good, I mean far from perfect. Like with things that I just happen to like about it, like maybe it's when it was made, maybe it's it's strange, like something like that. I think that there's something always to appreciate in the process. And it was interesting to hear a film historian sort of talk about that as like, you know, it's sort of like a sports season. Like if you don't win at all, did you fail? Not necessarily. Like, I mean, the, there's there's like the four good movies idea is also just like, he's made a lot of interesting movies. Like yeah. some of the movies that maybe don't even make the list as being quote unquote, the good ones are certainly interesting, right? Well, my- I mean, my Road to Perdition, does that, get, does that get to be on his good movie list? That's a very Road interesting movie. Well, is it possible? So he says he's made four pretty good movies. Is it possible to make a perfect movie? I don't think so. I, I think to your point, George, like there's always going to be something that is not working. But if you look at the whole, you can appreciate it. It can be interesting. It can be different. It can say something. I also I'm sort of I've been thinking a lot lately about, uh, you know, earlier this year, Vladimir Padunov, who is, a you know, a, a very famous like uh film studies guy out of uh, Pitt uh, passed away. And I was reading one of the obits of him and, you know, one of the students had asked him what his fam- favorite film was. And he said, I don't know, man, I'm just a slut for movies. And <laughs> like, there's that a part of me that's like, like Instagram tag <laughs> bio. Slut for movies. But like, yeah. you know, it's a if shirt. You just that's a no movies. film school shirt. Yeah. That's a no film school <laughs> podcast. That shirt. and the Mies. Oh, Mies. Oh, yeah, that was a yeah. good one. Check yeah. your Mies. Um, yeah, all right, we got to get a T Public going, guys. We got to get on that. Um, but yeah, Slut for Movies is like such a good, like, maybe I just love movies too much, but like, I look at Tom Hanks's uh, movie list and I'm like, dude, there's like 14 good movies in here. So this but, is sort of a weird, like, this is personal almost, but like, I used to be the biggest slut for movies. And I think I sort of soured on the on the making of them a little bit, like the mm-hmm. industry. And that changed some of my feelings about them as completed things. I just, I do just love them as a form, but there's something about some of the process and the industry about it that, that has soured me. But if you can separate it, like, and just live in bask in the glory of even a bad one, when you, when you're watching a bad one in a theater, it is always good. <laughs> yeah. a, like movies can be sort of like pizza. Like there's only a few times that I've watched a movie, even about like there's been a few times where I was like, oh God, like I can't, I gotta stop. Get me out of here. And the ones I won't even say, but like the, the ones that are like that, they're not even that bad. It's not like the room. It's like ones where I felt like I was being tortured. I was just like, I gotta get out of here. This is too boring. I want to preserve that because I do feel like I, I still have the naivete like I go into a movie theater and I am Nicole Kidman. Like Nicole Kidman. <laughs> and I'm like, I feel things here and I get lost here. 
that was my really good Nicole Kidman impression. But it was I, actually great. Was I vote yes. Very to solid. It. I would cast you as a young Nicole Kidman. <laughs> would you to give you, you your record- shot? To Thank climb you. the ladder, Finally, as opposed to just digitally de-aging her. Yes. In a in a where she. Oh my God! Could we make the Godfather with you as the young and her as Don Corleone? Like, um, could we do a gender swapped? I'm so down. <laughs> she about the making so... of that AMC ad. I think that there's something there. You did such a good reincorporation here. Yeah. You circled us all the way back. <laughs> well, which I, brings I, us. I, oh, I do want to say, like, protect. I I am at that phase where I want to protect the the wide eyed excitement for movies because I think that is, and I think Tom Hanks has that. At least he he feels like somebody who would continue to have that appreciation. And as you know, as it, it's so hard to make it. And now that we have permission to acknowledge how hard it is because Tom Hanks is writing a fiction book about it, you know, remember that feeling going in. I like the movies. Movies are like pizza. You can find something delicious in almost every one of them. Yeah. There's like a couple yeah. of exceptions on the pizza front, but I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to slander the good people. Of St. Yeah. Louis for the right most now. part, like you'll eat a, You'll eat a bad slice and be like, this is a bad slice of pizza, but it's still cheesy and doughy and salty. Sweet. <laughs> like, most of the time. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Join Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wayne, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Okay, so continuing on our, like, we just love movies, guys. Uh, we had a great No Film School question this week. The question comes from Belfast, Northern Ireland. Queer filmmaker based in Belfast, uh, films and edits music videos, does live sessions for bands. Sometimes does a little bit of wedding and corporate work. Basically, take work wherever you can get it. You and me both, buddy. You and me both. Uh, <laughs> uh, I remember, just as an aside, I remember I was on a set once. I was like shooting BTS. I was like 20 and I was shooting behind the scenes on a movie Julio Macat was shooting. And like Julio Macat like shot Home Alone and a bunch of other big movies. And it was like big time. And somebody made some joke about something. And uh, Julio said, you think that's funny? I haven't booked my next job yet. That's scary. And I was like, but you're Julio Macat. You're like big time. And I just had this moment of like, oh, all of us forever, forever at all levels are just taking whatever work we can get and hoping to do cool shit next. And there's an interview with Ron Howard where he's like, sometimes I feel like a sea captain who's just trying to get another boat going. And I was like, and you're Ron Howard. You own Imagine Entertainment and you're trying to get another boat going. So, you know, we are all there. Um, We're all there. So I'm really struggling with not having consistent income. Some days I'll do four hours of work for 300 pounds, which seems crazy. And sometimes I won't have any work for a whole month. How do I work towards having a consistent income and deal with the constant fluctuations in work? All my clients seem super happy with what I deliver. And they tell me directly that they'd love to hire me again. And they do. But sometimes opportunities are few and far between because I'm often the second choice filmmaker they go to when their main person's too busy. I'm considering getting a bar and a job in a bar to sustain myself, but I'm afraid that's, that might affect my capacity on working on my video projects. And then they include a music video, which I got to say, it's pretty good. It's like a, a nice little video. I was like, yeah, this video rocks. 
And and to confirm this Dear No Film School comes from somebody who's like a couple years out of university, right? Uh, they've been working in film for two years. I'm not, I don't want to assume two years out of university. Like they could be 40 and two years out of being an accountant. I don't know, but they're like, they're two years. years Yes. So that's, that's where they are. They're in Northern Ireland. So, you know, I have many thoughts on this. First off, whatever you do for cash flow has no shame. And if you got to get a bar job, don't feel bad about it. Zero shame. That is fine. People do it. Like every actor I know waited tables for the entire decade of their twenties, even people who are in stuff you've seen. I know actors that like, I know at least one actor who had like been in four Academy Award nominated movies. Like his performance wasn't, he was small parts, but like he was a recognizable part in four movies that were up for best picture and still had a day job. And like, I think at this point he's probably left the day job, but I don't know. But I just saw he's in another thing that's coming out with awards buzz. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is 15 years of you being in all of these things. But, you know, his parts are like four days at a shot. And, you know, even if you're getting a great rate for those four days, if you work 20 days a year as an actor, that it like, it's not like he's booking TV, which is the year round paycheck, which buys your house. So he might still have that day job. He's really good, though. So also something to speak to about like seasonal jobs. So I, you know, I'm almost four years into leaving my paying job. So dear no film school, two years ahead of you. I have consist, I've done like gig work here and there, but I always take like a half year where I'm working like a nine to five and saving money. And then that allows me to work on my own projects outside of that. So to go back to, I believe advice that Charles had a couple of weeks ago, one for me, one for you. This feels like the one for someone else while you're saving up so you can do the thing for yourself. Yeah. So there, absolutely. So there's a couple other thoughts I have. One is if you want to level up and you want to level up because you want to be making enough income, you don't have to worry about doing anything else. Usually what I have noticed is people level up by picking one task and focusing on leveling up on that task. So right now you're a director, editor, corporate shooter, wedding shooter. And I would say that dedicating a year to like, I'm going to dedicate this year to leveling up at this thing, whatever that thing is. It could be, I just want to direct music videos. It could be whatever, but picking a thing and saying, I will level up at this thing and I will be better at this thing and be busier at this thing and then pick the other things back up later. That is generally a really smart idea for moving up a level and getting busier. Because right now you're in a situation where you're not as busy as you want to be. And you're like, and there's, but there's other people who are ahead of you who are as busy as you would like to be. And they're so busy, they're passing on jobs that you're picking up. And usually picking one thing and putting all of your energy in that is like a great way to, to sort of get busy enough that you can end up not having, you know, you can get busy enough that you can start turning down jobs yourself. So that's one thing I would start thinking about is picking one of those many tasks that you do and and hanging out your shingle in that universe. The other thing I would encourage you to start thinking about is thinking about the types of jobs you're pursuing. One of the biggest things I always tell people is to avoid, like, you know, we all think we want to work in indie features. But the problem with indie features, especially if you like do editing or color or whatever, is like you can blow your client away in an indie feature and then they don't get to direct another movie for five or eight years. And they're absolutely going to hire you five or eight years later. But like, you know, it's not a regular business. So one of the reasons why so many people go for television 
is because it can be a regular year round business. I realize this is different in the UK where like the seasons are shorter and weirder, but like the volume is so much higher. And I know a ton of people who are like, I have, you know, sort of dual income streams on the side. I direct these music videos, but my main gig is editing and TV or something where there's like a more regular volume of work. And that can be a like huge, tremendous benefit when you're like, I would just like volume of work. So I'm making a living doing what I want to do. So I don't have a ton of advice on this because I think all the advice given is really good. And I think this is a, like Charles hinted at, almost a constant struggle. So learning a way to navigate it early and like with comfort. And my two things, um, and they're a little bit redundant, but but one is I think that eliminate any self-judgment, shame, or whatever about picking up jobs to earn money in addition to whatever you do. Like just because you're not necessarily, I, this is my my big like belief and I wish I could go back in time and tell myself this, but like, you know, if it's not related to industry and it's just bringing in cash, great. If it is related and it's not exactly what you want to do or how you see yourself and it impacts your ego a little bit, it's probably still worth doing because it may help you develop relationships and the time you put in on those kinds of things, like maybe it's being an assistant, maybe it's being a PA. I don't know. Sometimes those jobs run you so raw that it's hard to make time for anything else too. So it depends. But I would definitely look at like all options and eliminate the judgment or shame. I remember feeling like, and I have credits where I was like a gaffer, a grip, like on little productions and video things and who knows what, like, and I always, or like, I was just helping hold the boom. And like, sometimes I was getting paid a little and I would have this, like, I shouldn't be doing this. I should only be doing the things that I really want to do. And I think that was a mistake because every single thing I did could have led to more if I had stuck in those things. And I was learning even when I didn't want to be. So that's my one thing, my first thing. But my other thing is Charles brought up something that's that's really interesting. I've talked to some filmmakers, many on the podcast, and sometimes you'll talk to one who was editing commercials and doing really well and also had time to package and pitch features they wanted to direct. And eventually, at one point, the features became the main thing. And there was no room for the commercials anymore, even if the money was good. It was like, well, the money's also good with the features and that requires more attention. So those side things, maybe the main thing does become the main thing and the side thing slip. And maybe there's a, maybe that, that narrative has a shift yet to come again, where, you know, the feature market might dry up a little bit for you. So maybe you start editing some commercials again, or stay in touch with the people who you did that with, because the money is good and the opportunity is there. And like, I think these days, I think it's smart to be fluid and look for multiple opportunities in multiple fronts and sort of keep an open mind and not be like, I'm only a this now. I will only ever be a this, you know? Mm -hmm. That to me is a very dangerous trap and it, and it will prevent you from growth and success. But easy for me to say. There's so much value as well getting reps in in any way. So if you're if you're doing something where you're getting more exposure on set, that will help you be a better director. If you're, you know, I just spent the last six months working as an assistant to a producer. And yes, I was scheduling meetings and things that are, you know, admin-y as like a, you know, 
30-something person with another career, but I was also seeing how the industry worked and I got to see how people pitch and how managers approach production companies and how agents approach production companies and how a show with Amazon is in post-production and how things are being developed. I got to, I felt like I just went to boot camp for how this industry works and it's invaluable. So I think that there's definitely like a, a framing any opportunity with curiosity. And on the flip side, like I have a friend who who's a director and she works to pay her bills working at a restaurant here in LA. And she finds the best actors ever. Like her ability to cast because of the network she's built meeting people while serving has made her, her work so much better because she always casts the best people. So I think that that going in with like, what can this teach me and how, what can I gain from this? Whether it's experience, whether it'll give you a great script idea that you can write about down the line. Like there's so much value in in any experience because at the end of the day, like you're telling stories about people and in any of these roles, you're, you're interacting with people. Yeah. I can't think of a better wrap up than that. Hopefully this is helpful. Let us know. Yeah, totally. Thanks for the question. Yeah. This was a great question. This is like, a never-ending question of how do we figure out how to do this. All right. So that's been the No Film School podcast for another week. Uh, I'm on the internet at Charles Hain, H-A-I-N-E. There's an I in there. It's not like the underwear. Although no shame for the underwear. Perfectly good underwear. Doing its job. Yeah. And uh, Hain's Her Way was a campaign when I was a kid. I remember that campaign. (laughs) Which led to a lot of mockery of me. But now I look back and I'm like, Ah. you're mocking me for being something women would like? Yeah. 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 Embrace like, it. Women are going to like you is like such an <laughs> adolescent taunt. But Do kids get, I don't think kids get mocked like that anymore. I think we grew up in the tough era of anyway. Oh, are kids no longer <laughs> mocked anymore? I think it's, I think bullying is different now. I, so I think they still are, but for the- I think it's different. Yeah, I, anyway. I, I don't know that bullying is gone, but we'll find out. I mean, I It'll saw 22 go. Jump Street, so I know it has changed. And 22 Jump Street is amazing and everybody should go watch it. It's one of the best sequels ever made. Moving on from that, I'm on the internet in all of those places. I make YouTube videos that are mostly tech review stuff. All of my Twitter and Instagram stuff are about bikes and politics. I'm at Lost in Graceland on all the social medias and uh, at ggoggins.com is where I post my sketches and shorts. And I'm just going to put it out there. If you guys wanted to like book club the Tom Hanks book in 2023, I'd love to do that on the podcast. That's a fun idea. I think you should also put out there that you're available to do uh, the Nicole Kidman AMC thing performance. Also available (laughs) for the Nicole Kidman AMC performance, uh, private performance. um, Very professional. Yes, you can DM me for that. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School and uh, writer, director, I mean, not a director, writer-producer, a lot of other things. Uh, I'm, on Insta, I'm on Twitter, at George Edelman. Extraordinaire, that's what it was oh, that yeah. Charles said. I don't know that it, that it really qualifies, but you can read about all kinds of filmmaking news, tech, and tutorials at nofilmschool.com. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check out our Instagrams and YouTubes. And like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. Usually people say that at the beginning, but we save it for the very last thing, which doesn't really make sense. But I always find it annoying when people say it at the beginning. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know. But we really appreciate it. So send us your questions. The question today was great. We love hearing from the audience and engaging with you. 
So engage in the comments, engage on email, editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much for listening.